yo, yo pues se los vaquero. Ya Cruz Azul siempre campeón. A mí me gusta el show de medio tiempo. En la serie le Hola, Beto, ¿cómo estás? Sí. Alfonso Cuarón's Roma is inspired by his childhood memories. And in the film, Cuarón's younger self, Tono, played by Diego Cortina Otre, declares he wants to go to the cinema. The film he wants to see is the space adventure Marooned. This is Mission Control, Houston. The crew of Iron Man 1 has closed down the S-4B space laboratory in which they have worked, lived, slept and eaten for the last five months. Their Apollo spacecraft has separated from the lab and at this time, the automatic sequence of retrofire is about to begin. Ten, Ten nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Retrofire. The spacecraft should be starting its descent across Australia toward the splash point in the Pacific, some uh, 400 miles south of Midway Island. We are waiting now for confirmation of retrofire. Standing by for contact. Released in November 1969 to cash in on NASA's moon landing earlier that year, Marooned was adapted by Mayo Simon from Martin Caden's 1964 novel of the same name. Directed by John Sturgis, it starred Richard Crenna, Gene Hackman and James Franciscus as astronauts who find themselves adrift in space when the spacecraft loses power. Indifferently reviewed by critics, Howard Thompson in the New York Times called it workmanlike, with Penelope Houston in The Spectator describing it as a mechanistic movie, Marooned grossed in less than half its $10 million budget. And five full decades later, when compared to another space odyssey, it has long since faded into the darkest, quietest recesses of the cosmos. Well, that's not entirely fair. Marooned did win an Oscar for Best Special Effects. And while they may not hold up today, the first thing you do notice about the film is its Oscar-nominated sound. Les Thresholds and Arthur Payne Dadosi would later go on to win Oscars for Star Wars Episode IV. But one of the reasons why the sound in Marooned is so noteworthy is because Sturgis went against convention and steadfastly refused to commission a score. Instead, he used ambient sounds opting not to do what Stanley Kubrick had done in 2001 and co-opting pre-existing music. Although Quaron went to see Marooned many times as a young boy, it is noteworthy that when he went to make Roma, he resisted the temptation to have his young self watching an old classic which might indicate that it is not always a masterpiece that inspires a filmmaker. After all, Kubrick's space odyssey is so cerebral, it would be very hard to expect any eight-year-old, even one already bitten by the bug to become a filmmaker, capable of grasping 2001's philosophical underpinnings. No, as a child living in the plush suburbs of Mexico City, Cuaron was utterly absorbed by Maroon's emotional reality. Everything felt real, the space, the time, the events, they all resonated. So much so that in 2009, Cuaron took Maroon's premise and with a son Jonas, fashioned a screenplay for a film that, well, was not originally set in space. Here is the director in 2013, speaking with David Poland. He, he showed me the screenplay of something that he had written that he wanted to direct. And he wanted notes and I said, wow, this is, uh, I don't have that many notes, but I would love for you to help me to write something like that. You know, only two characters in a hostile environment, in that ca case, the desert. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, well, I would love to do something like this. And it's when we start talking about uh, possibilities. And in the first hour of conversations, we decided that space was the, the way of going. Of course, there is hardly a space adventure where something does not go wrong. 
In real life, both the Soviet Union and the United States suffered fatal catastrophes. In 1967, the parachute on Soyuz 1 failed to open upon re-entry, and four years later, Soyuz 11 suffered decompression. As for NASA, the shuttle disasters of 1986 and 2003 saw their vehicles disintegrate on takeoff and re-entry. In fact-based cinema, Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff, Ron Howard's Apollo 13 and Damien Chazelle's First Man all chronicle mishaps. And as for fictional scenarios, whether it be Fritz Lang's Woman in the Moon, Fred Wilcox's Forbidden Planet, the different adaptations of Stanislaw Lem's Solaris by Andrzej Tarkovsky or Steven Soderbergh, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar or Ridley Scott's The Martian, it would appear that in more ways than one, space is the final frontier. The thing about watching a finished film, as opposed to reading the script beforehand, is that audiences take almost everything as a given. But what is given is the results of hours, if not weeks and months, of agonising decision-making on the part of the filmmakers. And while each decision made might feel like another piece in the solving of the puzzle on how to tell the story, the truth is that each decision inevitably boxes in the filmmakers and limits the direction in which they and the story can go. Take, for example, the extremely effective decision to tell the story not only almost completely in real time, but also in one location, and for the most part, with just one actor. Before Quaran did that, it would have been an extremely difficult proposition to sell, let alone to pull off. Here is Quaran again with David Poland, revealing his true feelings for the entire production. I enjoy every single bit of the process. I would never do it again. This one? Yeah. Okay. I enjoyed every single bit of the process. It was fun, it was exciting, it was full of challenges. It, it was pretty much the, the process of making the film was not unlike the, the, the journey of the character in the film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that was actually kind of, so it's, it's weird to say, but certainly the adversities were enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, every, all of that was great, but again, I will never do it again. Uh, right now, any film, that is about people walking, I'll do. <laughs> you know? just, as long as they're walking. Whatever, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, walking and talking. Uh, walking and talking or, or not talking. Just walking. Just walking. <laughs> or sitting or laying down, whatever. You know, it's uh, bonded to gravity. Consider now the structural decisions of the Gravity screenplay and compare them to other films about space missions where something goes wrong. Every such story splinters its structure, so it is told from several vantage points. Whether it be Marooned, The Right Stuff, Apollo 13, The Martian or First Man, the filmmakers cut from the spacecraft, down to mission control, across to the media covering the drama, into a home as a family huddles around a television and outside of the street where people crowd around shop fronts or listen in on radios. While those shifts are designed to broaden the story from a group of astronauts stuck in a tin can, out into a global event, and thereby bring the human family that bit closer together, they also dilute the tension. That happens because we often wind up looking at people who are doing exactly what we are doing, looking at screens, which is not very dramatic, which is why those creative decisions in gravity work so well. Because they paint the story into such a tight structure, the cast and the crew have to work all that much harder to work their way out. Here is Gravity's Oscar-winning sound designer Skip Leavesay 
speaking with Tom Grant from Avid Marketing. For its um, overall sound idea was that it's in space. There's no sound. You can't hear it. Uh, Whatever is going on, um, there's no air to transmit the audio. So um, we came up. They, it was actually Alfonso and Glenn and the sound designer, uh, Glenn Fremantle and Neva Derry. They had this idea that if it was happening in your suit, you could hear that like a gassy sound. Or if you touch something, the sound would be transmitted through your suit to your to your. So you could hear transmitted sounds. So that was our little cheat. So things that were, if you like, if the ship was disintegrating and you were touching it, you could hear that rumble. Or if you you were hanging onto something and it blew up, you could feel that through your suit. So it also had kind of a minimal approach. So space is silent, which means in order for the film's sound design to be authentic, the non-verbal sounds we hear would have to be the vibrations the characters would feel in the vacuum of space. All those sounds were affected by a transducer, an engineering device which converts energy signals from one form to another. Yet, while those results were authentic, they were very, very muffled, which would have resulted in a very, very quiet movie. As noted in Marooned, John Sturgis decided against any score of any kind. Daring as Sturgis's choice was, it didn't work for the simple reason that the underlying events were not gripping enough to carry the tension through the silence. By contrast, in making gravity, from script development through to principal photography and beyond into post-production, Quaron was not absolutely sure how much, if any of the film, would be scored. Here is Stephen Price, who not only ultimately scored the film, but would go on to win an Academy Award for his work, talking with David Poland about how he got the job. It was kind of a weird thing. There was a two-week period. Come on for two weeks and let's see what happens. And I had this... this <laughs> and, it, and that was fine. It was like, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, how I love his films. All this. So in you go. And, uh, but in the meeting, I can remember him saying, you did Attack the Block, right? You know, yeah, so you're a writer, right? Uh, yeah, well, I, mean, I hope to be, obviously. You know, I do do whatever I'm asked to do at this point. And, um, and he, I remember him saying, well, you know, if, we'll see how it goes. And if it goes off, I should get a couple of cues in the film. You know, you never know how it might... And of course, you know, you, go, oh, you sort of tweak something in you. And then two weeks turned into about six, and we did a little test screening with various bits of, you know, my stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And then I get called into a meeting a couple of weeks after that, and it's like, well, you can't do music editing on this anymore. Oh, OK, well, thanks very much, you know, <laughs> but I'd like you to compose. And that's like, off we go. And then there was another five weeks to another screening, and it was just this... We got into these loops of we've got another screening, we've got to get these, this amount, let's do something for this bit of the film, let's do something mm -hmm. for that bit of the film. And gradually it all built up and evolved and, and changed over a long time. In other words, just as Price's brief was expanding as he went, so was Quran exploring the film's emotional space. And the same learn-as-you-go method was experienced by Tim Weber and the special effects team, who had to literally invent the technology required to render real, well, let me put it this way, when the first space adventures were made, no one knew what the world looked like from outer space. And even when the first images came back from the moon landing on July the 20th, 1969, they were in black and white. But with the advent of satellite imagery, we are all now more than familiar with how the world turns and glows, how its weather patterns twist and unfurl, and how astronauts float in space. We are so familiar with what it looks like, Weber and his team had no choice but to take a piece of fiction and render it as fact. Weber previously won an Oscar for his work on James Cameron's Avatar, 
And here he is an interview from 2014 at the DGA. The collaborative aspect of the movie was was a really big part for me uh, and the fact that everyone was based in the building at Framestore was a part of that, but also the fact that we were working on a sort of a movie that had never been done before and having to develop all these new techniques and and also develop new ways for the departments to work together and you know so because we were having to develop new ways to work together we all ended up working much more closely together I mean the visual effects and editing and production design were all you know we had members of the production design department sitting with uh, visual effects artists doing set dressing because it was a virtual set and I, I think that was a massive part of it. But here is the thing. No matter how cutting edge the whole process was, no matter how inventive the journey demanded the filmmakers to be, Quadron's directorial decision brought digital cinema right back to its celluloid roots. The very first films were all made in single takes. Yes, they were short, but they all lasted only as long as there was film on the camera. Then at some point during those early pioneering years, a filmmaker hit upon the idea of joining one shot to another. And in that moment, the greatest leap in the history of cinema was taken. Editing was invented. The oldest surviving film that contains a cut is from 1898. Come Along Do, made by British filmmaker Robert W. Paul, shows a woman visiting a gallery with her husband. There she becomes greatly irritated by the keen interest he shows in a nude statue. The clip is barely one minute long but it has two locations, one outside the gallery and the other inside. Simple as it sounds, Paul's decision opened up cinema's time and space. And ever since then, filmmakers have been cutting from one shot to another for dramatic effect. But in gravity, Quaron went the other way. The story unfolds in 82 nerve-shredding minutes, but in that time, Quaron uses just 156 separate shots. The opening shot alone lasts just shy of 12 and a half minutes. But paradoxically, when Sandra Bullock's Dr. Stone sees the satellite debris hurtling towards her, and when that debris rips apart the Explorer shuttle, cutting it to shreds, killing the crew and lacerating almost everything in its path, the event is filled with terrifying action. The camera twists and turns and gyrates, sometimes in sync with Dr. Stone, other times in violent conflict against her. In other words, the camera, directed by cinematographer Emanuel Lebeski, is doing the job of editing. But then later, when Dr. Stone is in the comparative safety of the Chinese capsule and doing nothing more than merely pressing buttons to program for re-entry, Quaron and his fellow editor Mark Sanger opt to cut back and forth from the control panel to Dr. Stone's face. Hardly what he would call dynamic editing. Yet it all works. Here is Sanger speaking at the same DGA event. I was on the film 14 months before we started shooting. Initially, we were just flushing out ideas and we were taking the storyboards and cutting the storyboards together um, with some dialogue uh, and giving them to the animators who would then put together a very rough previs and then uh, we'd get animation back, uh, previous back from uh, these guys, and then we would manipulate that and edit that. And we did this, you know, on all the sequences, all, all, all together. We were blocking the movie in advance of the shoot. Quaron set his crew all those challenges because the solutions would underline Dr. Stone's perilous emotional state. And for all that to work, Quaron had to immerse the audience in Dr. Stone's sense of weightlessness. 
frequently cutting from one shot to another, would have broken that real-time immediacy. All of which anchors Quaron's overriding film aesthetic. He has now won Academy Awards for directing, editing and cinematography, the only filmmaker ever to achieve that feat. And frequently throughout his career, he has woven into his films sequences that unfold in real time. It may sound strange, but for a director who has made special effects heavy pictures, he has always leaned towards real time and real space. But whether that time and space unfolds a thousand miles above the Earth's surface, or in Mexico City's suburb of Roma, the reality is always an emotional one. And it is the emotion that keeps the drama grounded. Mm -hmm.